0: Good morning to you, Uh, I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter today, Uh, once again that's Acts 19 verse 21. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of those black Bibles in front of you and uh, meet us there uh, as well so that you can walk through this passage together with us. If you need a little help finding that passage, that's okay, it's on page 873 in, in those Bibles if you choose to use one of those. Uh, For those of you who uh, may not know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here uh, at FAC, and I would love to meet you after service if we haven't had the privilege of uh, meeting yet. Before we begin, just one brief announcement. We are coming into that time of year, uh, again, where we will um, accept nominations from our membership for uh, key leadership roles within the church. There's some offices that we fill every single year, uh, particularly even the uh, role of the elder. Um, we, we will fill come October in our annual meeting uh, around that time. Um, but uh, we accept nominations from membership. It's a critical part of how we function as a church. And so if you are a formal member here at FAC, uh, beginning next Sunday, we don't have them this week, but next Sunday, Uh, Your nominating ballots will be available at the Hub, and I would encourage you to uh, pick them up should you desire for another member to be considered for a a role of leadership here. Um, If you have any questions pertaining to the process, uh, please don't hesitate to uh, reach out to us. Um, For this morning, though, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word now. Once again, we'll start reading in Acts chapter 19 through uh, Acts 19, verse 21 through verse 41, the end of the chapter. This is what God's Word says. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even uh, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians.'" And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, "'Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky?' Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Would you pray with me? Father, we've discovered over the last several weeks how powerful your word is. The, the gospel message has the power to transform hearts and change minds. And we pray, Lord, that the same would happen today. As we engage with your inspired word, would your spirit transform our hearts and change our minds? And would this be evidenced as we live out our lives seeking to honor you? We thank you for your loving kindness toward us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It was a sunny summer morning, the day that God opened my own eyes personally and revealed himself to me. It was the day that I truly became a follower of Jesus, a believer, and my recollection of the brightness of the day had much more to do with god 's glory uh, than it did the summer sun. Uh, my family and I we were visiting family friends in Boston, and I was in my friend 's bedroom of all places when this happened. Uh, My friend was uh, still asleep, it was in the morning, and it was in the quietness of the morning, that I was reflecting on a sermon that I heard at my friend's church the previous Sunday uh, about God's offer of grace, that I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and that the grace of God would extend far beyond any limit of sin in my heart. You see, prior to that day, I had grown up in a Christian home, and so I was always exposed to the ideas of Christianity and God. But it was clear that day that I didn't have an understanding of what a relationship with God looked like. I, didn't, uh, I had not been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and this was clearly demonstrated through my actions. It was clearly demonstrated through my thought patterns. It was clearly demonstrated through, through uh, idols in my heart. Throughout the younger years of my life, there were several idols which ruled my heart, but one of the most prominent ones as a young boy uh, was actually sports, especially baseball. Um, I I had a bucket list at the time, still sort of do, a a, a goal to see a game at every single ballpark. And uh, the reason I've somewhat given up on it is because I've gotten to the age where they're replacing the ballparks now. (laughs) Um, They're they're turning over quicker than I can get to them. Um, There's nothing inherently wrong about this goal, about this hobby, but the goal certainly represented the hold uh, that baseball had on my own heart. It was a picture, if you will, of of the place it had in my heart. And ironically enough, uh, the day that I became a Christ follower was the same day that my dad and I went to a, a, a game in the evening at Fenway Park in Boston. Um, If you're unfamiliar with Fenway Park, Fenway is one of, if not the most iconic baseball parks in history. And it honestly was the one that I was most eager to see in my life. Um, Fenway was like a shrine where I could worship this idol in my life. Uh, Yet that morning I had come face to face with the glory of God. And that dramatically affected my perception of Fenway that evening. It was such an odd experience that evening, and the best way that I could describe it at the time and even still today are with the words from a hymn, right, which says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, There's no better way that I could describe this experience other than Fenway Park was strangely dim. I couldn't put it any better than that. When people see the radiance of Christ, it changes how they perceive the world. And if it happens to enough individuals within a local community, it actually has the potential to radically disturb the economic, social, and cultural norms and stability of an entire community. By God's sovereignty and power, Paul here in Acts has been so effective in the city of Ephesus that that is what is actually going on here. The things of the world are becoming strangely dim to the citizens of Ephesus. We read in verses 21 through 22 that Paul is making plans to depart Ephesus and move on. It's it, what the author is doing here is just keeping us on track with Paul's second second missionary journey. Um, but these verses do help us put a date on this particular uh, event, this particular part in the story, primarily that this happens towards the end of Paul's time in Ephesus. As he's making plans, we know that it's been at least two years, if not a little bit more at this point. And, And so consider how different the culture of Ephesus must look like over the course of Paul's time there. When Paul arrives, there are very few believers. But by the time he's done, everybody has heard the gospel of Jesus in that region. And you have groups of believers, from what we've read, renouncing their old ways and renouncing their practices by burning millions of dollars worth of books filled with incantations and magic spells, which is what we looked at last week. The gospel has had plenty of time here to permeate the hearts of men and women in Ephesus, and in turn has now had plenty of time to permeate the culture, the heart of the culture in that city. And what we see in this passage is the fallout from two different cultures. It's a culture clash, a gospel-centered culture, And an idolatrous culture rubbing up against each other. We see some friction between the two, starting in verse 23, where we're introduced to this man named Demetrius. Demetrius, he sees how the culture in Ephesus is changing, and he doesn't like it, and so he he intends to personally do something about it. it. And it doesn't take us long to see why Demetrius doesn't like it, because he is a stakeholder in the temple of Artemis. We briefly touched on Artemis uh, last week, but uh, in case you weren't here, by way of reminder, Artemis was was a Greek goddess, one of the greatest Greek goddesses uh, around, and she was regularly and primarily worshipped in Ephesus. Uh, Her statue was housed in a temple, this extravagant temple, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And you could imagine it was quite a tourist attraction where many foreign travelers would come and worship there. Um, Because of that, the, the temple served as a key to the economic stability of the city. It played such an influential role in the local economy, in the commerce of the city. And Demetrius himself as a stakeholder was directly involved with this because we're told that he was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. These silver shrines, they would have been miniature replicas of the temple or at least miniature replicas of the part of the temple where the statue of Artemis was. And these silver shrines would then be sold to people who would come to visit so that they could take a piece of the temple, if you will, back home with them. Essentially, Demetrius was the one who made the silver trinkets that are sold in the gift shop of the temple. And he sees this concerning trend in the culture. So so he gathers his fellow fellow, uh, silversmiths together and other people of similar trade. This is probably like a guild that Demetrius is actually in charge of and he expresses his concern He says, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. Basically, our income is dependent on us being able to sell these trinkets at the temple of Artemis, of running the gift shop. Having four young children myself, gift shops are the bane of my existence. The the last time that we visited Disney, they do this evil thing where they put a gift shop at the end of every single ride. And I found myself having to corral my kids and pick them up and literally run through the gift shop. Because if they fixated their eyes on a single thing, there was no way we were getting out out of there without being roped into buying something. It was worth it just to not hear them talk about it the rest of the day sometimes. So it's no surprise to me that Demetrius made a killing doing this. S- selling these silver shrines uh, as almost like a souvenir, and um, and he continues on, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, Paul is the one responsible, has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the that, that gods made with hands, uh, human hands, are not gods. In Demetrius's explanation, as, as a as a an off point a sub point we actually see the subtle impact that the presence of the gospel has on a culture we actually see here how culture changes there's a very important word there in that paul persuaded people to turn to jesus that was his strategy tell them about jesus Right? This was not an active campaign necessarily against the temple of Artemis. This was not a forceful campaign. This was not a protest. No, all people, Paul was doing was telling people about Jesus. And then Jesus, by his spirit, changed the hearts of those who followed him as, as the way. They saw that they didn't need Artemis anymore. It's fascinating. I, I question whether to get into this or not. The, the name Artemis. There's some dispute about where that name comes from, but the the philosopher Plato thinks that it comes from the word Artemis, which means safe and sound, security. And so as Paul turned people to Jesus, and they saw Jesus as their security, safe and sound, well, we don't need Artemis anymore because we've found our security in Christ. Yet Demetrius here is still in panic. Because his security is at risk. As a part of turning to Jesus, it's it's turning away from false gods. As a part of finding your security in Christ, it's it's turning away from other things that you find your security. And as a part of turning to Jesus, you turn away from sinful lifestyles. As a part of turning to Jesus, you turn away from immoral worldviews. And that just happens naturally when you turn to Christ. As you see the glory of Jesus' face, everything else becomes dim. It's like when you're outside on a bright sunny day and you see the brightness of the sun and then you go inside and immediately everything just looks dark. It's because your eyes have just been exposed to the sun. And so what we learn here is that if we want culture to change, The best way to do it is to tell people about Jesus. To show them Jesus' face. We can try and protest and actively campaign and pass legislation and none of that will change hearts. Only Jesus can change hearts. That's what Jesus did in Ephesus as his name was proclaimed and believed through Paul. And Demetrius in an odd way, recognizes what's going on here. He recognizes the exclusivity of Christ. That if you believe and worship Jesus, you don't worship anything else. And if you don't worship anything else, you do not worship Artemis. And if you do not worship Artemis, you do not visit the temple. And if you do not visit the temple, you do not buy our silver souvenirs. And therein lies the problem for Demetrius. It was personal for him. The spread and presence of Jesus in their culture threatened his own personal livelihood and the security of his wealth. He feels backed into a corner, but he's not going to go down without a fight. However, he needs more help. He he can't do it on his own. And, And in order to gain a larger following, he needs to change the argument. He does change the argument. It's an argument that's less about himself and more about Ephesus as a city, Ephesus as a culture. Right? He, he considers Ephesus in and of itself to be under attack. And so he couches his argument in almost patriotic terms. Right? He, he gathers his fellow tradesmen, who he brought a lot of business to in, in verse 27, and he explains to them, not only is our trade at risk, But the the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and she will lose her magnificence and glory. People will stop worshiping her. All of a sudden he feels the need to, 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 to defend her. Right? My question for Demetrius is if she is truly glorious and truly magnificent, you don't need to defend her. We, we know that all Demetrius really cares about is money, but he comes across as some sort of warrior for Artemis. He's fighting on behalf of Artemis because she needs someone to stick up to her. Those evil Christians are robbing her of her magnificence, and, and we need to defend her. She needs to be defended because if we don't, nobody will. And so let's band together and make sure that that doesn't happen. And, and this is what gets the crowd all riled up. They're fired up, and they're shouting in the streets. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're afraid that she's going to lose glory, so they try and publicly give her glory. And before you know it, this riot forms, and they grab two of Paul's ministry partners, and they, grab, they drag them into the theater. And the theater was just an enormous open-air meeting space. It would have housed thousands of people. Now, Paul, of course, we know Paul. He's never one to be afraid He's, he's so bold that he wants to get in on this. He wants to take on this entire riot by himself. But some of his friends and fellow disciples urge him to show restraint. They don't let him go. You get this idea that Paul wants to, and they're just kind of holding him back. And, and we get the sense that um, th- this is just a powder keg ready to burst, and Paul very well could be the flame uh, which ignites it. So, so he resists and he stays back. And the picture that we get of this mass riot is just utter confusion and chaos. The word for confusion in verse 29 could actually be translated as chaos. You've got people all over here screaming one thing. And then you got other people over here screaming, trying to talk over them, screaming something out. This is like an Italian Thanksgiving, right? Just everybody's talking over each other. Everyone's got the answer. Uh, Most of the people don't even know why they're there to begin with. They're just kind of there for the popcorn. They're checking it out, saying, something's going on. I don't know what's going down, but I want to be a part of it. I want to be part of this show. And, uh, th- there's just, and there's just this cloud of misinformation kind of hovering about. It, it, and we get a flavor for how chaotic and confusing this is in verse 33, when this man named Alexander gets up and he tries to make a defense to the crowd. He feels the need to defend himself somehow. But we find that Alexander is Jewish, right? He's not even part of the group of people that Demetrius had targeted originally. It's so disorderly that they don't even know who they're fighting against. They don't even know who the common enemy is. What's most likely happening here is that the Ephesians are having trouble distinguishing Christianity from Judaism. And Judaism, the Jews were against idol worship as well, and it's so chaotic that they just kind of lump them together right? And uh, Alexander feels the need and attempts to distance the Jews from the Christians, but this mob mentality overtakes him. He doesn't even get a word out, it seems like. He doesn't get a chance to make a defense because the people just start shouting out again. Great is Artemis. They're screaming for another two hours, defending Artemis' magnificence, And then finally in verse 35, there is an unlikely voice of reason. One of their own speaks up. We're told he's a town clerk, which means that he would have been a highly visible public figure. He would have been one of the highest local officials who had great influence in the city. And it's clear that he actually shares the crowd's interests in in the temple of Artemis. The town clerk essentially makes the argument that because everybody knows the greatness of, of, of Artemis and because they have seen the sign from the gods, which was a stone that fell from the sky, it most likely was a meteorite. Because of this, there's no reason to overreact. This town clerk essentially says what I said earlier. If Artemis was truly magnificent and truly glorious, you don't really need to overreact. You don't need to defend her if she is truly glorious. He's worried that the situation is getting out of hand. He tries to pacify the the crowd. And and then he, he directs them to handle the situation in an orderly fashion. Right? If there's been any outrageous offense against Artemis, then this is not the way to carry out judgment. Instead, judgment should be carried out in an orderly fashion. The courts are open, he says. There are systems and there are procedures in place for for things like this to handle such situations. And truth be told, the town clerk says, we are the ones at risk right now. This is what he says in verse 40. And verse 40 is like the punchline of the entire passage, of the entire story. What does he say? For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. This is quite an ironic situation, is it not? The whole event started out because someone was concerned about Paul and his beliefs and influences disturbing the peace. Yet they are the ones that end up disturbing the peace because of their beliefs and influence. The irony goes even further. Ephesus, as a city, was under Roman authority, under Roman occupation. And if these men were charged with riotous behavior, which the town clerk was concerned about, they could have lost the the, the respect of Roman officials. And this guild of silversmiths could have been disbanded as a punishment. City officials could have even come under punishment. The city itself could have lost some of its rights and freedoms. They were so concerned that the spread of the gospel was impacting their security in livelihood, but it, their unhinged response almost resulted in losing the very thing they were trying to preserve. According to the town clerk, The spread of the gospel is not the real threat. They are a threat to themselves because they could not demonstrate self-control. And from there, the crowd listens. The the town clerk uh, gave them a warning and they dissolve and and they scatter. And so what are we as believers to make of this crazy story? Here are a string of takeaways that float to the top of the passage. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it can transform not only the hearts of individuals, but the heart of a local community. It has has the power to impact culture. That's how powerful it is. Second, when the gospel impacts culture, sinful culture will not go down without a fight there will always be a clash of cultures. It happened then, it's still happening today, and it's going to happen tomorrow. As long as sinful culture and godly culture try to occupy, occupy the same space, it will happen. As long as there's sin present in the world, it will always jockey for position in our culture. And so it is to be expected. So what are we as Christ followers to do when this happens? When there is a culture clash, how are we to conduct ourselves? Unfortunately, there are many believers, especially in the midst of our own culture war that we are experiencing, who look a lot more like Demetrius than they do not. They take the approach of Demetrius in the story. They react out of fear of losing something. They feel this incessant need to defend God as if God can't defend himself. They think the answer is to just be louder than the opposition. Right, if we just talk over the opposition, we'll win. We already won. We don't need to win. And then they begin to rally the troops so that their voices can be heard. And believers who think that they are on some kind of noble crusade actually become agents of confusion, agents of misinformation, and agents of chaos, just like Demetrius. Demetrius. In this story, even the secular town clerk understood this riot and confusion and chaos to be a negative event. That was a black mark on the community. When a community of believers experiences a clash of culture, we must be the orderly ones. We must be reasonable. We must be sober-minded. Those are the spirit-infused qualities and characteristics of a Christian community, that of order. There's no need to get hysterical. We believers are called to be the peacekeepers and the peacemakers. Now I can understand even one's passion and desire to engage chaotically at that level. Even Paul desired to go into the crowd, go among the crowd. He wanted to be in the thick of it. He wanted to be in the center of that fight. But it was the encouragement and the wisdom and the general consensus of the other believers that Paul, you need to show restraint. Because if you go in there, you are only going to make it worse. And he listens to them. And he listens. And this is actually the pattern that we see in Paul's ministry, how he conducted ministry. All we see in Paul's ministry in Ephesus is Paul merely, once again, proclaiming the gospel in a simple, ordinary, uh, orderly fashion. And the gospel does just fine on its own. Paul doesn't need to defend the gospel because transformed lives defend the gospel. That is the proof. God's power in the message of the gospel is the defense. Paul let the gospel speak for itself and defend itself. One of my favorite C.H. Spurgeon quotes comes from a sermon that he preached in 1888. Spurgeon says that the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion? They have him caged for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free because who will dare encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Paul doesn't engage in the chaos as if he needs to defend his ministry or as if he needs to defend the glory of God. Instead, he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he lets Jesus do the rest. In truth be told, when we pursue an aim for order in the midst of chaos, we actually reflect the image of God. Because ultimately, it's all about God, not us. God is the one who ultimately brings order out of chaos, right? We, 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 per, we pursue order and reject chaos because that's what God has done in us and through us and around us. But that theme is actually one of the first to appear in the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Theologians agree that that verse describes total chaos. Those words, without form, void, darkness, the deep, waters, all of them were ancient synonyms and symbols for chaos. There was chaos. And what does God do? He speaks creation into existence. He creates order. He brings shape to the shapeless. He brings light to the darkness. He harnesses the chaos of the sea. And it was very good. That last one, throughout the rest of Scripture, there is this thread with the picture of the sea. And typically, the sea, especially in the Old Testament, represents the ongoing chaos of the world but interestingly enough when you come to revelation 21 the end of the bible where we see this new heaven and this new earth a perfect world which god has created what is glaringly absent from its description the sea there is no sea in revelation 21 because there is no more chaos And just as God has brought forth order from chaos in creation, God brings forth order from chaos in our own lives. Through Jesus, our sin, which is both an agent and product of chaos, is put down so that the glorious order of God may reign in our life and be reflected in our conduct. What God has done in creation and in recreation ultimately points to what he has done in us through Christ, going to the cross, being my substitute so that I would be saved and reconciled to God. And for that, we praise his name. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, um, for bringing order out of chaos. Father, it's hard to wake up uh, in the morning and read the news headlines. Many people have done that and question where you are. But, but you remind us in your word time and time again, Lord, that you are sovereign over all of these things and that you have a plan. And you have implemented your plan for all history. And so, Lord, would we would we trust you and depend on you and lean into you? And, and would our own conduct be reflective of who you are and your own character? We praise you, Lord, that while we do not have control, you do. And it's for these things that we praise your name. Amen.